Welcome to Divorce Etc. hosted by us, the ex-experts. We're here to give you all kinds of information and tips on everything divorce. Plus, we're asking a lot of the questions that you may not even think of or know to ask, but we know because we've lived it, so we get it. We're Jessica and TH. Welcome everybody to today's podcast with the ex-experts. And our guest today is Ruth Kim. She is a partner and family law attorney at Zemsky Law here in New Jersey. And we welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you, ladies, for having me. We spoke with Ruth um, in a part one, and this is a part two podcast about litigation. There is a 0.1% uh, of people who do end up going to court. And I settled. One of them. <laughs> I, I literally settled on the day of my trial. Or do you even call it a trial? On my day of court. Like well, yeah, it would be trial. And and yeah. I got to tell you, I know we talked about it uh, in part one, but a lot of those cases that 0.1% do actually settle right beforehand, but you do all the legwork to get up to that point. You're doing all of the, the discovery, the binders. I'm sure that you, TH, had a million binders of just oh. financial documents and all the files that you've had, and it just builds up. I mean, there could be uh, the last trial that I was took part in, there were five binders and that was just our side. So uh, imagine how many binders and, and when we were in court, you would log in your binders and judges yeah. never wanted to see your binders there. So you'd lug them home and it was a laborious process. And even if, and you were at the cusp of it. So imagine if you actually were starting that trial and you were knee deep into it. And, and unfortunately judges are so inundated with work. Um, in a lot of cases they're backlogged and you might get a trial date on November one and not see trial again until December, January, or whenever the judge has availability. And also keep in mind, you're allotted a certain amount of time for trial but judges have domestic violence hearings that they need to hear. They have other court proceedings that they may need to hear. So your trial is getting interrupted during the time of your trial. So if, even if you're allotted an 8.30 to 4.30 time slot, you may only be heard for three of those hours because they have court staff. Court staff have to, have to break for lunch. Um, they might have a DV calendar in the afternoon. So you might get uh, a 9.30 to 11 and then a two to four slot. So, you know, they always say trial is not the best option. And I can tell you, having lived it, um, it isn't. And even in a Zoom platform world, it isn't ideal because, it, I mean, there's so many things. The Zoom platform is, is uh, there's a lot of problems with it when it comes to doing a trial because you can't see body language. You don't know what the person's looking at. Right. Um, they could be there could be someone in the room coaching them on what to do. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of issues. And, and I can tell you that most people would not want trial to be their ultimate resolution of their case or or have a judge, um, a person in a black robe, making that final decision in your case. Because if you're settling your case, you both have a say in what's going on. At trial, you don't. Do you think, though, people who are getting divorced generally do you think anybody says we're going to court or you think they're saying we're getting a divorce? So I, and I, I hate to say this because when you're in that 1%, you're already part of my language. You're already screwed, right? I mean, you're already, you're already there, but a lot of times to get to that point, you have litigants who from the get go say, I'm not settling this case. 
she, he cheated. He, she made my life miserable. I'm going to make their life miserable to the bitter, bitter end. And so, I mean, and unfortunately I had had that in the last couple of years, I had a trial where, you know, he made it clear that this is how he was going to conclude this matter. And it went to trial on issues that it shouldn't have truly. I think quote unquote win. No, because at the end, they you've spent all of your money on litigation when you could have been spending that money on your children's college education or retirement retirement imagine being 55 and have zero in savings because you've spent all of it on a trial it's not worth it you guys are talking about the logical part of it though which obviously makes sense and the whole problem with litigation is that one or both parties is so caught up in the negativity, the acrimony, you know, the resentment that they're like literally not able to see straight and think about it. Because the point is that you had made, you, you said something the last time, Ruth, which is that, you know, why would you want an unrelated third party that's basically a stranger who doesn't know anything about you other than what's like been presented by the by the lawyers doesn't care about you right the judge you're a number you're really a number right why would you want this person to have a say and make the decision but i'll tell you as someone who didn't go to court and didn't do any of that litigating i think that there is a probably a mindset where people think I can't settle with them because they're never going to agree or see my side of it. And at least a judge is impartial and will listen to both sides. And so that's going to be a more, I, if, if this is going to be the result, I'd rather it be the result because the judge is going to say it than the fact that he said it. It doesn't always work though. I had a judge who I had, I, the company I worked for imploded. So I had lost my job. I had three little kids. I was doing a homegrown business because I'm just like that. I like to be busy like that. And at the time, because we're a little older, there was something called a Blackberry instead of an iPhone. (laughs) And on my form, he's reviewing my expenses and he goes, what do you need a Blackberry for? You don't even work. That was my impartial judge. So don't think that I understand the judges are supposed to be impartial. I'm sure many, many are, but some are not. And that was the judge I had to live with for one of my four years of my divorce. They're human beings, so they're going to have their own, like, you know, opinions from where they come from. I just think it's more for a lot of the people. Again, yes, it's not always going to work out the way you want, but it's like you're ex-spouse may be offering you a certain settlement and you just are seething inside and you're like if that's going to be the settlement I'd rather it be because the judge looked at it and decided that that was fair versus me just agreeing to it from this person that I'm divorcing and can't stand so here's the problem with that is that yes you you're having this neutral person make these decisions for you but if you're doing your own decision and your own and you have your own say with regards to the finalization of the terms, there are nuances that you can add in and there are compromises that you can add in that no judge is going to do for you. The judge is doing bare bones. The judge is going to lay out what the alimony is, what he believes 
the custody is going to be based upon, by the way, you guys retaining your own experts or a joint expert or having a, a joint expert, then not liking what the joint expert said, so then retaining your own rebuttal expert. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars on a on, on, cut, on dealing with custody. And the judge is going to say what your schedule is going to be based upon the review of the testimony, but he's not going to do the nuances and all the little things like, you want, I mean, I'm just trying to think of something like, um, you know, you want every Christmas Eve. I mean, the judge is going to do a, 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 you know, a pretty pro forma um, custody and um, holiday vacation schedule, et cetera. Whereas if you guys were negotiating yourself, you can do those nuances. If you want to negotiate that you get every Christmas Eve every year, because that's very important for your family, well, you'd negotiate that he gets every Christmas or, or vice versa. I mean, so there's a lot of things that go into play in avoiding the trial and having the the judge make the decisions on these because you are the you could be the master of your own destiny. Um, yes. So let's take a step back. Okay, mm -hmm. so you come in, you're one of those people who says, we're going to court, right? It only takes one of the two parties to say you're going to court. The other one, like me, just gets dragged in and, and you don't have a choice. So what are the basic expectations that you tell your clients? So they've already picked this toxic path and expensive path for them. So what... What does that even mean? We're going to court. What does that mean? So if you're at that point, you are already, you have already exhausted yourself of all of the tools that the court provides to you to try to resolve your case. And I know I touched upon this in part one, but I'll just briefly go through it, which means that you went to the case management conferences, um, you exchanged discovery, um, you had depositions. Um, and then there's, mm -hmm. please describe discovery. Kate, please describe each of the, define those words for us. So the case management conferences are conferences that the court does with um, litigants and with the attorneys to get a sense of where the case is and to schedule dates and, and, and make sure you're following along the path. So your initial case management conference, you will um, be there, there'll be dates when things are due, when you're going to be sending out your discovery. It's called propounding discovery. And then there's going to be a date when you respond to discovery. He'll schedule depositions. And if you guys need um, evaluations, whether or not it's a pension evaluation or a house appraisal, um, or if, if custody is in dispute, this first initial case management conference, you lay out what, what are the open issues before the judge, and the judge gives you a kind of a, a path um, to figure out you know, guidelines, steps as to how your case is going to proceed. Presumably, when you're getting closer to trial, you've accomplished all those dates and deadlines of the discovery. And when I say discovery, it is um, think about all the questions that you could ever want to ask your soon-to-be ex-spouse about anything and everything under the sun. Oh. And it <laughs> truly... Um, and if, if there, if it's a case that has custody as an issue, then you do custody interrogatories, which are horrible. It, they're horrible. It's, it's, are you a better parent? Why are you a better parent? Why do you think that you'd be a better parent to your children as opposed to your, who's a better disciplinarian? Is it you? Um, have you ever done corporal punishment? You know, you name it. I mean, that's just a sampling of what the custody ones are asking you about. I mean, there's lifestyle ones, which, you know, go into when you're talking about alimony, the lifestyle interrogatories deal with where did you shop? Where did you eat? Do you wear bespoke clothing? 
you know, uh, what it's restaurants so do you go invasive. to? Invasive. It is it's very invasive. Feel like you're being like a strip search to some you, extent. It, it truly is. And then to the extent that your spouse knows about certain things, like let's just say that there was an extramarital affair, they're going to want information with regards to that because it goes into, did that person dissipate my money to fund the wife or the, the girlfriend or the boyfriend and how much, right? And even then, you know, it's... The dissipation aspect, I think that is a whole different podcast, to be quite honest, because there are a lot of people who are like, that's my money. He used that money or she used that money to fund this XYZ escapades or whatever it may be, whether it's prostitutes or another girlfriend or whatever it may be. We both had that. I ended up getting like a lump. I mean, it wasn't gigantic, but I ended up getting a lump sum to kind of reimburse me for all the trips. Me too. Taken with her. The trips. But you never get dollar for dollar. And that is the problem that, and and no judge is going to say, if he spend a hundred, and I keep saying he, and of course I'm being gender neutral. I mean, it's, it's, but if he or she spend a hundred thousand dollars on their paramour, you'll get 50%. And even then judges say, well, eh. So, I mean, there are considerations, um, you know, you certainly can have a trial to go to figure out what that dissipation amount is, but typically it's never going, not typically, I've never seen it to be dollar for dollar. You don't get that hundred K back because technically 50 of it was his to spend as he pleased anyhow, right? I mean, which is ridiculous to me. I wouldn't Um, have been there in the first place. Yes. yes. And can you imagine if it was here presently in your bank account or in your investment account, it would have grown. So, I mean... It's baffling to me that that you don't get it, but at the same token, you know we're we're an equitable state, so I understand that you know fifty percent was was the the other person's to utilize. Um, but I, truly, the dissipation aspect of it is is, in my opinion, a whole different podcast. It is certainly something very interesting, and it sounds like you both have had your own separate experiences with regards to it. It's, it is a, it's an interesting topic. Um, includes, um, reward miles. So yes. for anybody listening and, and we have done podcasts on dissipation of assets, but like all my American express miles he used for travel instead of cash. And I actually got reimbursed like a million or whatever. And I then took my kids on a trip to Costa Rica, like two years later with those miles. So it's not always cash, right? It could be points and stuff like that. So, okay. So you right. have so, all so that's together. just, so that's the lifestyle interrogatories. That's all the discovery. Um, and again, it, and it's not just the questions, it is requests for documents. So when we're talking about requests for documents, I'm talking about three to five years of bank statements, three to five years of retirement accounts and investment account statements. So, and if we're, if we're doing the dissipation, whatever you spent on that paramour, you get the information on. Once you're past that discovery stage, which can be as laborious, and that's a, to be kind. Um, and it can take- Huge Rubbermaid containers for right. the amount of paperwork but you, that we but- accumulated. It's, it's important for people to hear, it's easy to get the visual of like the lawyers dragging in their suitcases, like filled with paperwork, right. but people listening, like what you need to understand is this is a lot of homework for you. 
This is a 100%. lot of work that you are going to have to spend time doing because your lawyer doesn't have access to your bank accounts. And a lot of the information that is going to have to be provided is going to be stuff that you're going to be spending hours tracking down through your accountant, through your banker, through all of your records. So again, I just think like when it comes to people thinking about litigation and you're like, oh my, yes, I'm paying my lawyer to do all these things. Well, yeah, but you have to provide all of those things. Like you, anyone out there who, who had to ever rent an apartment or buy a home, think about the process you had to go to for approval for your lease, you know, supplying and the mortgage. Like this is a hundred times more work than that. You could be spending weeks on end just gathering paperwork before you even yeah. give it to your lawyer before they can start. And it's actually very good education for you if you're mm -hmm. not aware of your finances and your assets and your marital assets and who to call. And did you even know you had accounts at this bank or that he had accounts at this bank? And honestly, at the time, I don't know what it is now, but everything had to be printed and then oh. photo. So I'm on my little printer in my house because I didn't want to do it at a Staples. I didn't want to do it in a public space. It's kind of embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And printing and printing and the huge clips and the folders. Like, Ruth, I know all of you know you guys, all you lawyers have your, your binders. But in your house, yeah. like, it's like, uh, you know. So when you're at trial, they call them war rooms. Right. So, and that's where, if I knew I had a trial impending, we would put every document that we've ever had in that file. And, and TH, maybe your divorce was a couple of a few years back, but now everything's digital and it's actually far worse. I am, I'm one of those people. I'm tactile. I need to have papers in front of me. Whenever someone files a motion, I need to have it in front of me printed so I can make my handwritten notes on it. So, so too with trial documents, right? You want to look at every sheet of papers to determine is this important to the issues that are presently before this judge? And does this help my client or does it hurt the other party? And how do I use this against them? And you need to be able to, that's what the binders are for. You're supposed to produce them. You're supposed to label them. And if you're the plaintiff, they're P1. And that's the first document that you're relying upon in your case. And it goes, you know, I've had up to P387. I mean, like we're talking about. Oh my God. And when you're I'm talking about amazing. each document, yeah, I'm, I'm sure so I can crazy. guarantee you it was TH. I mean, the, and, and just also everybody listening, if you're the one who's saying we're going to court, every piece of paper costs time for your lawyer to look at, just so you know. It's not just your time because then you're going to hand it off to Ruth or whoever your attorney is. And then you're going to pay them by the hour to look through all that shit. Right. And, and just to remind you again, I've looked at it already initially early on in the case. But if TH's case is four years old, well, guess what? I got to go through the whole file again. And I have to go through four years of files to determine what is helpful to me in in the trial aspects of it. And, and now with the digital and everything being online and knowing how litigious cases are, I actually, within each client's folder, I have subfolders and I have it by category because I now know, and there are certain cases where you know off the bat, it's unlikely to settle, whether or not it's the other side, whether or not it's the other attorney that they've hired, and you know that they're going to, it's going to be a litigious. I just put it in subcategories. So this one is um, dissipation. This one is inheritance. This one is life insurance, because I know that these are 
three prime areas that are going to be major concerns for me. So I, I sort of, I put them in the regular correspondence file, but I also put it in my um, subfolders because I know that I'm going to rely upon it later. And it actually does help with the, with the going back four years of documents, but, but certainly that's why most smart attorneys require a trial retainer before trial even starts. Oh, and that trial sure. retainer is not going to be little. It's going to be thousands upon thousands of dollars because there's a lot of issues that need to be taken place. And imagine if this is upheaval in your life, it's upheaval in your attorney's lives, right? I mean, because they are, they're 24 seven focused on your case and that comes at a cost. So now you're going to court, you've, you've produced your documents, you've found everything, you've had your case management conference. You've tried mediation and all the panel of judges, of uh, lawyers that the, you know, the courts. You've done your intensive settlement do. conferences. And, and just so we're clear, before, yeah. yeah, before all of that takes place, any expert reports, any reports that right. you're relying upon all need to be in. And if they were done two years ago, guess what? They need to be updated. So you're going to have to pay for your custody evaluator to make sure that they update their reports. You're going to have to have your house appraisal updated. If you have forensic accountants involved, all their schedules um, need to be updated and they all need to be prepped and ready to go for trial. All costs more money. Who are, are generally, again, we're going to court and you have kids. So this is like the worst case scenario mm -hmm. in terms of money. Yes. What are the kinds of experts that you can expect that you might need before you go to, who are those experts? So you'll, uh, certainly you'll need, especially if, if you have children involved and, and unfortunately, um, you know, you have likely going to have custody and parenting time related issues. If you do, you're going to need um, to retain more than likely a custody uh, evaluator. Um, you could either do it jointly, meaning that you and your husband are, or you and your spouse are electing to use one joint evaluator to make a call with regards to who should have custody, what should be the parenting time structure. Um, or you could either retain your own. So it's entirely up to you. Um, judges look very um, heavily, weigh, weigh these custody evaluators very heavily when it comes to custody trials, because otherwise, it is a he said, she said, right? It is, he's a horrible father. She's a horrible mother. Well, guess what? Now you have a neutral who gets to listen to and hear and get all the evidence that you have and all the evidence that he has. And he he or she is the custody evaluator is going to be rendering their report. Now, of course, if you get a custody evaluation and you don't like what they're saying, so let's just say it's not very favorable to mom. Well, guess what? Mom has the ability to go get her own rebuttal report. So you're talking about delaying your case even further, right? Oh so you God. have a joint custody evaluator who makes renders an evaluation. Let's just say they're doing a fantastic job. They render their evaluations in six months. It's usually a little bit longer than that. You don't like what the report that came out. Then you go get your own rebuttal. Your rebuttal comes back and it's obviously going to be more, so, uh, you hope, more in your favor. Well, he's going to say, well, I want to get someone else to rebut this person. So you're talking about. Um, it's never it, ending. It could literally it's never ending. never ending. It's like you, right. people don't realize that from, from what you said before, like the way that it's scheduled because judges are backed up and trying to get people's availability and you're only going to have, you know, a day here and a day there and a day there. And then things need to be updated. And everyone's going to 
rebut the rebuttals of the rebuttals. Like it's, it really is never ending. Well, there is some point where the judge says enough and we got to move yeah. forward. So, right. so you know, the, the, the rebuttals stop at some point, but truly it's going it, to, it, it's, it's a shitter get off the pot moment. Right. And part of my language, but that truly is, it, is it's okay. Now that you've gotten this far and you have, now you've got your rebuttal, you have a joint custody evaluators that's saying this, and let's be clear. I mean, a judge is probably going to give a lot more credibility to that joint as opposed to your rebuttal unless there are very serious issues with regards to the, the joint experts report, because the joint experts still neutral, right? Whereas the rebuttal is, I don't like this about this person's report and tell me, how do we fix this? And, and so there's a lot of nuances that go with regards to doing a rebuttal. And I'm not saying that, I, I think that you should always get a, if, if a custody evaluation is not necessarily in your favor, you certainly should explore why it's not in your favor and how do we fix it? Right. Um, and I'm not saying you're buying this rebuttal expert. Certainly not. They're they're not going to lose their license to to um, right. award you sole legal custody or, or whatever it may be. But but certainly you, there are uh, there are alternatives to just accepting a joint um, custody evaluation. I, I would also say, again, if you're the one saying we're going to court, just a friendly reminder. I had to hire my own. He hired his own. His girlfriend was also part of this process in terms of judging her um, ability to parent Fitness. our children. Yep. Um, and you have a limited amount of time with this stranger. And your biggest fear is that your kid is going to be tired or cranky or, you know, a kid, right? And they're not going to be in their best light with you. And you'll be like, holy shit, I'm going to lose my kid. Yeah. So again, this is another part of a bigger piece where you don't have control mm -hmm. and you don't have control over a four-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or an obnoxious teenager or whatever the hell is going on. And they're stressed out because of what's going on. Yep. So just, this is another thing, another reason why you should really try to do everything you can. And again, I did, and I still had to go through this, but it is very, very stressful when someone's determining whether you're a good parent or not. And you have been the sole parent for so many years. Now someone's going to, now right. he's going to judge if I'm a good parent, you have been here for four years. If you were so worried, you should have been here. Right. Right. So it's, it's no control. And that report comes out and you're shitting a brick yep. because my, my, um, advocate in quotes, um, was no more favorable to me than to him. So it wasn't that he wasn't favorable to me, but he was also favorable to him. Right. Right. So, so it burns. this is a whole other thing. Okay. So you have custody experts. I also hired a forensic accountant. Yes. What other kinds of experts do you are typical for a trial. So it, the, a lot of times you find that if, if you have a stay at home parent um, and they're saying, I can only earn, uh, you know, 10,000 because that's what I did when I was, uh, you know, volunteering or part time as a librarian or whatever it may be, um, or working part time somewhere. Um, and meanwhile, you were an accountant in your other life. So you maybe you have your, your CPA, but you haven't used your CPA license in 15, 20 years or, or your law license or whatever it may be. And so 
they're they the other side's going to want to impute income to you right you're they're not going to accept that you're at 10 because even if he's at a million he doesn't want to pay you impute means that that impute income means that the court's not going to accept that your income is 10 even though that's what you earned last year because you have a higher ability to earn now you don't want a court to impute to you 100 because that's what you last earned 20 years ago as a CPA because you don't you don't do that anymore i'm sure and i don't know i'm not a CPA but i'm sure in 20 years being a CPA is highly different now than it was 20 years ago moreover you have to be certified you got to do all your classes you got to do you know you got to continue with your education as a CPA so an employability expert comes in looks at your credentials, looks at your uh, your uh, CV, your resume, and says, okay, if tell me what you want to do, and and we'll figure out if there's jobs that, that are capable, you know, sort of in that line of work that you're doing. So I'm just going to use CPA as an example, but let's just say you want to be a bookkeeper now, or, or maybe you want to be imputed the income of a bookkeeper. Um, and maybe you don't even want to go back to work at all. I mean, it, it truly is, but you're going to be imputed something. Your number's not going to be that 10. And when I say imputed, let's just say you want to impute probably 40, because if you're working at I don't know, Starbucks 40 hours a week, you'd probably make 30 to 40, right? So we're gonna, there's gonna be a number that you're gonna be imputed. It certainly isn't gonna be what you're earning right now because you're far below what um, someone in your capacity should be earning. Um, and, and that goes into, there's a lot of factors that go into play with that, especially if you have younger children, if they're, you have children that are under um, school age, you know, you might not necessarily be imputed so high. There might be step ups with regards to your imputation of income. Maybe you're imputed 20, then you go to 40. Um, so a lot of it, 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 there's flexibility with regards to that. Um, but the employability expert comes in and opines as to what you're capable of earning. So, and so that comes into play when in the alimony aspects of it. And I know that that's ultimately, it comes into play with alimony and child support because you're trying to figure out how much are you contributing on your column versus his column or her column. So, so I, I, I did that too. Um, and I, had <laughs> I was not a stay at home mom mm-hmm. and it was a, a very humbling experience. And they basically said, you can make $90,000. So I said, great, where's the job? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I want to make $90,000. Yeah. So anyway, okay, so now moving forward, what about depositions? So, and there are other experts that you could have. I mean, and truly, and just, just to really, really go back to that quickly, when you have custody and parenting time evaluations, typically you're going to have, hopefully the children are going to be in counseling and therapy. So you're going to have all that aspects of it. Um, You're going to have, you might need a pension expert or an actuary to help assist, figure out what accounts are valued at. Um, And you already touched on the forensic accountant or the forensic evaluators, especially if you have um, a spouse that has a business or, um, it, it, you know, owns his own business, whatever it may be, you're going to need that, that to get evaluated. Depositions are what takes place after all the discoveries done. And so you have all the documents in front of you. And it's a point in time where some cases do settle because they're getting questioned on the things that they produced and the information that was gathered. And maybe they're saying to themselves, maybe I don't have a strong case. Yeah. Or maybe we realize you're not so great 
under pressure and you won't be so great before a judge and maybe we should settle the case now. I mean, not that I'm saying a lot of cases do, but there are, you can see the holes and flaws in your case and you either regroup and re-get your ammo, whatever, recharge or whatever it may be and go forward. Or you say, maybe we should go to another mediation session and try to resolve this. Um, but depositions is the first step in, in asking the questions that you may have had all along with regards to your case, such as, you know, when you're going through discovery and you see a line item and it's not an account you've ever seen before and you're, you're seeing it on a monthly basis. Now you're wondering, where's he funneling this money to? Well, at deposition, you get to ask those questions and you get to get in-depth answers with regards to it. And it may lead to either settlement, which is unlikely, but it'll more than likely lead to more questions and more money and more issues. People need to know also, again, like coming, looking in from the outside as someone who didn't have to go through, through this whole process. I think people get caught up in, you know, we're going to do this because this is going to be the chance and I can ask him about this bank account. I can ask mm -hmm. details about this affair. I can ask about X, Y, and Z. Okay, great. Keep in mind that anything that you've ever done, now that now's the time he's going to ask you about it. How many glasses of wine do you have a night? Do you smoke pot on a regular basis? You know, are you going out? At, you know, how many times a week are you getting a babysitter so you can go out with your friends? Like anything that can be used against you is going to be used against you, just like whatever you have to use against them. So again, I think people sometimes get caught up in what they're going to accomplish and not necessarily yeah. how it's going to hit them back. A hundred percent. And also not even just deposing one another. I deposed a lot of people involved in his business, other people right. personally, mm -hmm. where money was exchanged, that was questioned. I deposed those people. They were a bigger, that was a bigger, I guess, threat or risk because they don't want to be in you know, a compromising position or in your divorce litigation. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're going to tell the truth. So do they have dirty laundry that you don't want to have? Yeah. The deposition process isn't just the parties. It is, you can depose your experts. You can depose relevant people to your case. I mean, you can't depose the mailman or, or whatever. Maybe there, there have to be some relevance to your case unless the mailman is, uh, impregnated your, your wife or whatever, maybe, but it, there has to be a relevant person or, or reason as to why they're being deposed, but, but it, it certainly is someone that they've had an affair with. It could be friends of yours for specific reasons that you've been on mm -hmm. vacations with it could partners. Be your colleagues, right. Or your business partner. So keep that in mind. It's really yes. like you're yeah. dragging other yeah. people through the mud into your case. And again, I, I touched, they don't want to be enmeshed in your divorce litigation. A lot of people are reticent to being deposed. I wouldn't want to be deposed if I was, if my friends were getting divorced. I it just, I like both of you. I don't want to be in the middle of this. So it is, it is a difficult spot to be in. I actually deposed somebody and I assumed it would be at his office, but it was actually at his home and he was humiliated and he, he was so angry with me, but I was like, you know what? Too bad. Right. I mean, I've got a, I've got a situation here. Right. So the, the long and short, and I hope everybody understands this, and as much as you can control whether or not you go to court and the extent to which you fight for certain things that may not be as important later as they are now, um, it's, this is already 
just talking about it, so many hours of work, of time, of reports, of hiring other people, not just your lawyer. You're worried about how much money you're spending on your lawyer. I had a forensic, I had a custody expert. I had to go to an employability expert. I had to get appraisers. I mean, and, and again, I didn't want this. So there were times when I compromised, but there were other times that I wasn't. And then I was like, you know what? He's dragging me here anyway. So I'm just gonna, I'm going, you know, I'm not gonna just sit back, but, but just really do the best you can. And if there's any way to appeal to your ex, you know, appeal, start with, you know, kill him with kindness. This is really hard on both of us. Right. You know, this is really, you know, whatever. And, and if you get that moment to be human, do it because I, it, it was four years, every minute of every day and still just managing your kids with the divorce and yourself. And I had to, you know, go back and get a new career, which I would have done anyway, but I don't want someone to tell me I have to do that. I want to do it. Or impute you an income that was well above what you would have been earning initially. Sure. That's yeah. right. Who the hell are you? Yeah. Like, don't lose control of your life. Don't let someone else determine the direction of your life. And so, you know, I think at this point, Ruth, if you agree, like now it's based on your state and your situation, but I, I, we didn't mean to scare you, but, but just really to open your eyes, this isn't even the half of it. This is just it, prep. It truly so, isn't. And, and the one thing I can, can tell you, right. A practice tip that I would tell you is if you have a relationship with your ex and reach out to them. Because at some point, it could be a train that has derailed and you are you you and your ex-spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse are the managers of these trains. You're the conductors. Conduct. Speak. Right. Have a conversation and just say, hey, listen, this is spiraled out of control. How do we get it righted? How do we right this ship? You know, I you know, I'll give you an extra day. Let's just call it a day and get this done and resolved. Uh, you know, maybe I'll do this. Or, I mean, at some point you can negotiate a little bit too. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do so without your attorney's blessing or without having spoken with your attorney, but ultimately, you know, you're still the conductors of the train and you can get yourselves back to a place where you don't need trial or where you could say, maybe we'll narrow down the issues for trial. And this is very important too. You could have a trial on 10 issues, but if you could resolve five of them, guess what? You've cut down the amount of preparation, the amount of time that's going to take place, the, the lawyers involved, the experts involved. And maybe we're only dealing with alimony as opposed to custody pairing time. Because truthfully for me, Custody and parenting time, that's the heartbreaker for me as an attorney, as as a mom, but also as, a, you know, helping people and doing this and navigating through the divorce process. If you can get custody and parenting time squared away, it makes my job easier because then it's a business transaction. You know, it, it really is extricating yourselves from the business of the, your marriage and doing the and just kind of doing the finances thereafter. The custody and parenting time part, and I know TH can speak on that, is the hardest part of all this. Yeah, but overall, I mean, I think the messaging is that people traditionally think litigation is like what divorce looks like. And nowadays, it's not necessarily what the majority of divorces look like. And this is why. And it's just important that people who are in this situation have a really clear understanding of the complexities and the nature of litigation and why it takes so long and why it costs so much money and why yeah. you really are better off if you can just find some common ground. So, um, 
just a great conversation. I mean, there's still so many more aspects even of litigation and other things, but just as this is like, you know, as Tate said, barely scratching the surface, but thank you for like, you know, laying that all out. Cause I think that people sometimes really need kind of that outline and to hear um, how crazy it can get to have a better understanding of what direction they want to take in their own process. Thank so. you. Thank Thanks, you. Ruth. Thanks Ruth. We'll talk Thanks. to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to Divorce Etc. with the ex-experts. We really hope this episode was helpful for you in getting information you need and feeling empowered to get through it. And always remember there are so many of us just like you. Now please hit the subscribe button so you always get new episodes and please rate and review us. You can also check out our website filled with free resources at xexperts.com. Follow us on social on Instagram and Facebook and send us an email to let us know your thoughts or any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about. See you next time.